0: We'll be Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The divinely commanded two segments today, Lisa Corgan will talk about what she calls the engineered austerity at West Virginia University and what it means for higher education generally in the U.S. And then Taylor Lorenz will talk about her new book, Extremely Online, A Social History of Internet Culture. A couple of weeks ago, West Virginia University, the state's flagship, announced deep cuts to its academic programs. Majors like art history, musical composition, creative writing, foreign languages, all of them, landscape architecture, and PhDs in math and resource management will be no longer if the administration gets its way. Many other programs will be cut back, among them the English major, something i take personally, or merged with others. These moves go beyond belt-tightening. They're a profound redefinition of what a major university is supposed to be about. University President G. Gordon G., who holds the record for the number of institutions one person has led, has left behind him a trail of scandal, ranging from questionable financial practices to racist jokes. G., age 79, plans to retire in 2025, so he will afflict no more universities with his presence, but he's going out with a bang. Here with more is Lisa Corrigan. She's a professor of communications and gender studies at the University of Arkansas. Lisa Corrigan. So let's start just uh, with the basics of what West Virginia University is up to. What are its plans?
1: Its plans are to dismantle and divest huge amounts of money from the liberal arts, particularly smaller programs that are significant in their fields, the entire language program, mathematics, their MFA in English, and other programs to divert the money because of a massive budget surplus that was wasted on administrative bloat and capital projects.
0: Some of these programs are the only place in, in the state where you can uh, study them, right?
1: And some of them are the only in the world. Their puppeteering program is is one of only two programs in, in the entire country where people go to learn how to build puppets for TV and for film and for live theater. And it's really quite an outstanding program. But the university has seen fit to justify cuts to those programs as a way of removing funding for the arts.
0: I could just hear uh, Ron DeSantis making jokes about puppetry, though.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I could throw some back at him.
0: <laughs> yes, he, he, deserves, he deserves them all. How did this budget disaster come to be?
1: In some ways, the WVU story is a story of a lot of public Research One institutions in places as diverse as Alaska and Utah where administrators have been siphoning off more and more and more tuition funding as the universities have struggled to keep pace with costs in an era of declining state funding and massively declining federal funding. So a bunch of the money that they're making from tuition and from grants and these sorts of things are going towards administrator perks and salaries instead of to the programs that students are benefiting from.
0: The deficit they're talking about is $45 million, which in the context of a large institutional budget or a state budget doesn't seem that massive.
1: No, it's not.
0: I didn't think so. So, I mean, this just sounds like an excuse.
1: West Virginia like most southern states and most states its size has a state surplus. So it's not like the state couldn't come in and toss them one-time money to cover some of that spread. The problem is not that there's not the money to pay for these programs. It's just it's just a craven cash grab. I mean it's it's unjustifiable. And in some ways I think that's why the story is blown up because the WV administration keeps changing its rationales for the cuts because they know they don't really have ground to stand on. Based based on the $45 million deficit, it's just not a big enough number. And it's certainly not a big enough number over time to match the cuts that they're imposing. It's, it seems like engineered austerity.
0: Okay, let's talk some about the, uh, the history of the institution. It originated as a land grant university. Uh, what was the land grant program?
1: The land grant program was a program that gave uh, land and a federal financial funding to large public universities across the United States to help expand public education efforts, especially in agricultural centers. So WVU is actually the only research one land grant in the state of West Virginia. It serves the largest number of students in the entire state. So any cuts to it would be a big deal. But the ones this big will be seismic for the students of West Virginia and the surrounding states who see it as an affordable education that matches land grants all across the country.
0: Now, you said R1. What is the story of this hierarchy?
1: So there's a system of classification for universities and colleges called the Carnegie System. It ranks universities based on a giant and complex matrix of Indices, including size of student body, student to teacher ratio, federal and state funding, funding for pupil, the ranking of the programs in terms of how outstanding they are compared to peer institutions. So it's a huge matrix of um, indices and the research ones are the highest Carnegie Research Classification. So there are different kinds of schools, right? There are small liberal schools, public schools. There are small private schools. But the ones that are public are classified under the Carnegie system, and West Virginia University is the top in the state.
0: So in other words, um, as an institution on a national scale, it's a very distinguished one. It is. These cuts are occurring in um, an overall national story of cuts to higher education. So, uh, yeah, how does the West Virginia story fit in? How is it symbolic of what's going on?
1: Well, I think it's symbolic because the president, E. Gordon G., is uh, a figure who has had a lengthy scandal-plagued career in higher education as an administrator chased out and forced to resign from many illustrious Research One institutions, including uh, Ohio State, including Brown University, including Vanderbilt University, where in many of those cases he was also accused of financial malfeasance. So in some ways, part of the story about WVU is really about its president's perpetual mismanagement and his continued social promotion among public higher uh, education institutions. But I think the other side of it is that WVU is an illustrious institution in a small, poor state that has a small population. In a state like West Virginia, it's not like there are tons and tons of parts of the budget where people can take money from if they're going to redistribute wealth. So about half of the budget in, in the state of West Virginia goes to public education. Of that, about 40% 40% is K through 12, and a little bit more than 10% is higher education. That's half of the entire state's budget. So if you're going to try and divest money from some place where there's public money, public education is the place to rob. We see it here in Arkansas, where I'm located, where when tax cuts are the subject of conversation, especially in periods where there are tax surpluses, like in West Virginia or in my case in Arkansas, the place to go to rob Peter to pay Paul is public education. So in some ways, West Virginia University is the canary in the coal mine. And it is a wake up call for people who are deeply invested in tax money supporting public goods that can be used for the entire public and not just private small groups of individuals.
0: Now, in your state, Arkansas, is not unlike West Virginia in lots of ways. So, are you seeing similar things happening there?
1: we see it in K through 12. Certainly right now, um, we had a voucher scheme that passed called the Learns Act that was driven by our new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, that is distributing public tax money to private schools uh, and individuals to exchange for educational opportunities that, of course, don't necessarily comport to any federal or state regulations to spend that money. And in today's paper, we even had a school in Tennessee get cleared to be able to receive Arkansas state tax funds to support private education. So what's happening in West Virginia, you know, is garnering attention, but I'm afraid it's a much larger story about tax and, and grab policies in public education around the country.
0: You know, the contrast with the like 1960s and 70s when uh, they're expending heavily to expand uh, the state university systems was connected with a whole lot of ambitions, cultural ambitions, economic ambitions. They were supposed to make a happier, more civilized, more prosperous country. Uh, and no, that's just out the window now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, Reagan steamrolled that. You know, I'm a scholar of the 1960s and of of social movements. I teach a seminar on Reagan. And the war on public education and the war on the Department of Education that began in the Reagan administration really took aim at destroying any kind of positive cultural memory of the 1960s and 70s, particularly as they pertained to free public education, and free higher education, particularly the California experiment, of course, where Reagan was from. We are seeing the devastating legacy of that, particularly after the Bush tax cuts in 07 and 08 and the recession, because the federal government cut its funding for public higher education in some institutions between 30 and 50 percent. And that meant that public universities had to make up that funding either through state tax increases, which they didn't get, or through private funding, which left them vulnerable to the whims of the oligarchs who dump money into their systems. So this is really a critical time for higher education to redefine its mission and to really think through what it means to be holden to so many other stakeholders than the federal government because they have such opposing visions for higher ed that don't really focus the students' academic and intellectual needs.
0: I spent three years at the University of Virginia in the late 70s. That was then heavily financed by the state. I don't think it was a majority of state funding, but it was very heavily financed by the state. And now state funding is down to about 10% or so last time I looked. But Virginia does not suffer from funding problems. Um, It just seems like there's been a privatization of elite public IVs, as they're sometimes called, like Virginia. At the same time, um, the less favored public institutions are just, you know, out with the begging cup. Is that a correct perception?
1: I think that that's a fair characterization. I think one thing about the the, quote unquote public Ivies is that they are trying to keep up with the Ivy League schools, which, of course, have massive endowments that could cover the enrollment of every student that they could possibly, you know, attract for the rest of eternity. I don't mean that to be glib, I mean that like materially. So the thing about the the Ivy League schools is that they're super tiny. They they educate the smallest percentage of American college students. And the large public research ones educate the vast majority of the students. So they are really, the public R1s are really struggling from the divestment from both the federal government during the Bush administration and then decreasing state revenue going through the state legislatures to fund higher education. So the trade-off has to come somewhere, right? It's zero sum. So they either have to raise tuition or they have to find more international students who pay a higher tuition. But, but the Trump administration really curbed international students. Student attendance in the United States, which helped subsidize in state student tuition at a lot of our ones, and also then decreased a lot of the tuition dollars that were going to some of the programs that we see at WVU getting cut, particularly foreign languages. So, in some ways, it's kind of a complex funding schema, but the state schools are scrambling to make up where the divestment has happened. And the only place that that money can be made up is either in private donations with private donors or in tuition increases, which is terrible for students. But the donor issue is a big issue that Virginia has had issues with, and so have a lot of our ones. I'm thinking of UNC Chapel Hill with Hussman pulling back money from the School of Journalism after they agreed to hire Nicole Hannah Jones. So the the conflict over private donations is fraught with a bunch of culture war drama that, quite frankly, is unnecessary and detracts from the mission of public higher education.
0: I'm speaking with Lisa Corgan, a professor of communication and gender studies at the University of Arkansas. This all is happening at the same time we've got the new college drama in Florida, the general war on woke in higher education. Uh, how do these things fit together, the funding crises and the war on woke?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think for the general public, the idea that higher education is somehow more liberal than the general population makes good fodder for culture war things, especially in an authoritarian moment like the one that we're living through right now. So I think the fact that higher education has responded to student interest in critical inquiry and critical thinking has made it public enemy number one for authoritarians, because of course, our charge is to create the most well-rounded citizenry possible. And so rather than that, they would prefer that we were votex and we were just doing job training programs at best so that the elites could just get siphoned off to the Ivies and could control finance in perpetuity. I think in the case of Florida and the new college, this is an experiment for how clearly the authoritarians can control higher education and produce a higher education model that is more closely aligned with what we in communication would call a propaganda model, where they are inserting the information to be spit out ad nauseum to help build a singular worldview that supports their power plays in Florida. I would say that I'm actually kind of optimistic because I think that the war on woke is backfiring, (laughs) I'm in Arkansas. I'm in a small, poor state. And I have to tell you, when I encounter people statewide who want to talk about higher education, they see the war on woke as a distraction and as a manufactured crisis that undermines the ability of their children and grandchildren to get a quality education in the United States. So I'm actually, I sort of think that it's backfiring.
0: Well, that's good news. I hope you're right on that one. What were the lingering effects of the COVID crisis on higher ed?
1: A, a bunch of students delayed their studies. So a lot of the Research One public universities are seeing record enrollments for freshman classes entering right now in the fall of 2023. That is creating some strain because, of course, hiring didn't keep pace in the pandemic for a whole host of reasons. One is that people were not flying to interview, they, there were hiring freezes, everyone was sort of waiting to see what kind of fallout would happen in higher education. But now, because of those hiring freezes, we don't have enough faculty in the public research ones to manage this huge, huge enrollment. Now, WVU's enrollment is down a little bit for the year, and so in some ways that makes them a little bit of an outlier than some of the other larger schools in the area in which they're competing. But on the whole, higher ed is bursting at the seams and just straight does not have enough faculty to handle the student demand, especially when so much money is being siphoning off into administrator salaries.
0: And now AI, uh, there's a strand of thought that seems to believe that uh, we don't really need to learn how to read or write or add or do anything anymore because machines will do it for us. What kind of effect is that going to have on higher education?
1: In the short term, the most immediate concern that I have about the AI is actually the massive tech layoffs that have come in this period, you know, as the pandemic has changed and the way that higher ed divestment is creating an opportunity to pipeline those tech financiers and engineers into higher ed. So that's one story that's happening certainly around WVU and at Marshall University, which is right down the street, is that a lot of universities, Marshall, certainly Johns Hopkins University, they are creating massive, massive hiring programs of AI engineers and software engineers to help direct the boom in AI. And I actually think that is a a longer term concern for higher education because there is, you know in the last 150 years, I would say, even real concern about machines replacing humans in the labor force. And I don't think higher ed is immune to it, but I do think that the privatization that you were speaking about earlier lends higher ed as a place to poach capital in a way that's very different than like the checkouts, at target or something being replaced where the people are replaced with machines. So I think that we are in for a major transition of both capital and labor and AI is just sort of the tip of the iceberg.
0: Let's talk about the long term goals here. West Virginia University, clearly a test case. Now, Yale isn't going to abolish its French department or close down its music school. But what's going to happen? What's the vision? Uh, is there some sort of tiering of, of universities and, and colleges that um, these architects have in mind? Is that the idea that uh, some things will be for elites and the rest get vote tech?
1: Yes, as I have written, I think, all across you know the public sphere in the last week, the idea is that there will be a very small tier of private universities educating the nation's elite. They'll have access to the best of everything. But in particular, foreign languages where they will be, you know, directed into international finance and international law and international human rights and international affairs in a way that will not be offered at schools that are being poached from. And so for even public universities, even large research, one public universities as they lose this revenue to administrative bloat and to divestment and more nefarious goals they will you know be broken down into vocational tech programs the preference would be that all forms of higher education will be fully funded by the federal government, right? So that there is no zero-sum game. The universities aren't competing against each other. Everyone has the opportunity to pursue the kind of learning that suits them the best in terms of the dreams that they want to pursue. That means public education, including community colleges and universities, but also small liberal arts schools. But I don't think that that's where we're headed right now. I think there's time to turn it around, but I think people need to make have a serious conversation about what the alternative is, because if the elites who are privately funding the small private schools are the only ones who get the quality education that Americans deserve, the future of this country looks very different than the promises of liberalism that are enshrined in its most sacred documents.
0: How do we fight this? Is there a movement? Um, is there a strategy? Uh, is there hope? Or are they just going to steamroll over? everyone?
1: One thing about not having federal funding is that the states are in it, they feel like they're in it alone, right? So, you know, the state and the board of trustees, but the state and the state legislature, in almost every state in the country, they determine how many lobbyists the public university system has. So it's not like there is this expanding political space inside of every individual state where the universities have more room to maneuver, to build an offense, to shore up public goodwill, and trust in the public education. And so instead, I th- it would be great, I think, to have conversations in the administrative conferences and professional conferences of the administrators of higher ed where they work together, except that without federal funding, they're disincentivized to collaborate on a multi-pronged strategy to help the rising tide lift all boats. They're not in that game because they're competing for a limited number of big donors to, you know, endow their programs. I think from the bottom up, students really have an essential role to play in demanding the education that they want in their institutions. But I think that they are obviously disempowered for a whole host of reasons. Some of them are a consequence of the pandemic and the lack of education that they were exposed to during the pandemic. And some of that is a systematic depoliticization of student activists, also since Reagan. I think the students have a huge role to play. I just don't know that they know it yet. And so I think it's faculty's job to convince them that they have a stake and that they have a voice and that they have the power to help turn the tide.
0: I'm guessing the administrators feel pretty well-funded and secure, so they're not exactly about to lead the charge.
1: You know, I don't know.
0: Is that being too cynical?
1: No, I don't think it's too cynical, but... I would just say in every vector of American public life right now, people seem really fragile and insecure about like lots of stuff. So I would just say it's not that it's cynical. I just think it might overdetermine the flexibility that administrators actually have to shift the needle. I think that they have more capacity to make large-scale change than they do, and they feel more precarious perhaps than they are.
0: That was Lisa Corrigan, a professor of communication and gender studies at the University of Arkansas. You can find our article on the topic on The Nation magazine's website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Brahms' academic festival overture, performed by the Chicago Symphony under Georg Schulte. In memoriam, the passing way of life. Next, social history of the Internet. It may come as a surprise, but the thing has been around long enough now to have a history. The Netscape IPO, often seen as what set off the dot com mania of the late 1990s, happened 28 years ago, which is before over a third of the U.S. population was born. I used to look forward to Taylor Lorenz's near-weekly reports on the state of Internet culture in the Sunday New York Times. But then she decamped to the Washington Post, and I see her work much less often. But thankfully, she's just about to publish a book on the social history of the Internet, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet, from Simon & Schuster. The book won't be officially published until October 3rd. Once upon a time, reviews and interviews were supposed to be held until the publication date— Now, Taylor and her publicists tell me it's all about the pre-orders. Net time has come to the once-stayed world of book publishing, and who am I to resist the tides of history? Taylor Lorenz. Your book begins with a tale involving Tinsley Mortimer, uh, someone I was fascinated with for years and uh, whom the New York Post once described in a great typo as a socialist. (laughs) How does she figure into the history of social media? It's not the first name that pops to mind.
2: I wanted to start with this story. It's, it's one of my favorite stories about the internet. And I just, I remember when it happened, socialite rank. It was a blog only existed for a year, but it was ranking New York City socialites. When that was happening, it sort of upended the New York City socialite world in this really interesting and hysterical way. And. I felt like it really was sort of this metaphor for how the whole internet became. There was this imagined rivalry between Tinsley and Olivia Palermo, who's another... Now she's actually... Olivia's a full-time influencer. It was sort of a good metaphor for the internet where now we're all kind of cognizant of our social status and ranking and there's metrics applied to everything and...
0: Socialized have always been uh, at least somewhat concerned. There's some ambivalence about it, but they they do want to get their names in the papers and their pictures. But this brought in a different sensibility to it, right, which was a foretaste of what was to come.
2: Yes, exactly. So, I mean, Socialized has always sort of been on the society pages and in magazines like Quest and Town and Country. But with the rise of blogs and the internet, it was basically this couple of outsiders um, from Staten Island, these Russian immigrants that... Were totally not socialites themselves, but kind of upended the whole scene and did this blog almost as a social experiment where they posted ranking the different socialites and detailing drama and kind of like it's basically a gossip blog for the socialite world and you know everyone just assumed at the time of course that it's a socialite themselves writing it like how could people possibly know this much detail about? parties and what happened. And the truth is, is that party photos were actually being put online for the first time ever in the early 2000s. And you didn't need to be a socialite or you didn't need to be in that social scene to like know what was going on. And so once it was revealed that it was actually these two people that were quite outside the scene, it just burst the bubble and it made it really clear how the internet allows us to kind of follow anyone online and kind of watch what they're doing and know about parties that we we aren't at, which at the time seemed very revolutionary. Now, of course, it's just what we do on Instagram every day.
0: Now, blogs, of course, are really um, the founding moment of what you're writing about here. Um, they seem like old, very old school now, but uh, yeah. they were quite transformative in their day. Um, Josh Marshall, for example.
2: Yes. Josh Marshall um, is such an interesting person. You know, he was an early political blogger and he actually started in traditional media. He was at the American Prospect um, covering politics and he felt like, you know, there was all these updates that he couldn't publish fast enough in a traditional print system. So he started a blog um, called Talking Points Memo and started to break news. And his story really, I think, showed the power of the internet for political journalism. Obviously, Dredge Report had existed before what he was doing, but he was scooping you know, DC reporters on stories and breaking tons of news and really forcing the DC print media to readjust how they covered politics and to cover it in a more real time way. Yeah. And he ended up building a really sort of successful media business out of that. He built Talking Points Memo into its own media entity with reporters and staffers of his own and still runs it to this day.
0: Now, he uh, is a recognizable descendant of traditional media, but uh, the mommy bloggers are another story, right? Heather Armstrong and Deuce, and um, that was really much more of an innovation in, in some sense.
2: Yeah. As I read about, you know, mommy bloggers, which are basically just like mothers that turn to the internet, to share these really raw, unfiltered tales of motherhood. They were the first influencers. I mean, they were the first women to really build audiences around cults of personality and by sharing of every detail of their lives with the internet, and then monetizing it. And the revenue pathways that they generated are set the stage for the creator economy that we have today.
0: Now, there was uh, some discontent when both uh, Heather Armstrong and Josh Marshall started taking ads, right? This was uh, the intrusion of money into a world that had been largely a labor of love or obsession, or but something not mercenary.
2: There was actually no backlash when when Josh Marshall started monetizing his blog or any of the tech blogs that were monetized at the time people didn't really care they kind of thought oh you know i guess this is how they're supporting these media businesses but there was huge backlash when the mommy bloggers started monetizing um they were called you know bad mothers commodifying their children um you know motherhood was supposed to be this sort of sacred selfless act that you did you shouldn't turn that into a business and they were just absolutely vilified and received insane levels of hate which is so Ridiculous, of course, because they, like any other media entity, of course, need to monetize, and ads are one way to do that. But yeah, when Heather Armstrong put ads on her blog in 2004, it was like a huge scandal at the time.
0: Well, there's, I mean, sexism, of course, but then there's an additional layer of sexism uh, about the mommy who is supposed to be pure of soul. Yeah. And then social media started coming along. MySpace, a very early example, also now largely forgotten, but it was quite a splash for a time.
2: Yeah, MySpace really took off in the mid 2000s and really was rivaling Facebook for a while. It's hard to remember. But Facebook was not always, you know, dominant necessarily in those first early years. And I talk about in my book, these sort of different models of social media, the way that MySpace talked about itself was as an entertainment platform. And it actually... it it sounded very similar to actually how TikTok describes itself today, which is a platform for discovery and entertainment and not necessarily about finding your best friends. Obviously, you had your top eight, but it was also about sort of discovering new people, whereas Facebook was all about sort of replicating this offline relationship structure onto the internet and adding your real friends. And it had this smooth, homogenized interface and everything. And obviously, Facebook ended up winning out and that kind of altered the social media landscape for years. But I think MySpace, although it was ahead of its time, it's funny, you know, how the parallels between MySpace and TikTok, because I think that MySpace model ultimately won out.
0: Facebook looked pretty staid next to MySpace, but it survived and grew. Why did Facebook have the edge?
2: At that time, meeting people online and connecting with people online was still stigmatized. There was not a lot of money in it. You know, it wasn't aspirational to be a popular person on the internet. That was not a career that you could have really. And that was not something that people sought out. It was mocked. And so Facebook really allowed average people this kind of safe way to like, connect with people in a cool way. It was very normalized to like add someone on Facebook because it was this sort of closed ecosystem. It was very clean looking, gray Silicon Valley. But ultimately, Facebook taught all of us to post for public consumption. And so it really did it, unwittingly, I think, usher in this era of influencer culture and kind of taught us to be content creators ourselves.
0: Paris Hilton, how does she figure in your story?
2: Paris likes to call herself the first influencer. And I think it's somewhat true. She was definitely in that early group. Um, she was one of the first to take her reality TV fame and really monetize it effectively on the internet and use reality TV to grow her internet presence and launch products based off that. So after her appearance on The Simple Life, which ended up being you know one of the most hit reality TV shows of the 2000s. She leaned into the online world and, much like Kim Kardashian, kind of built up a social following and now has you a know, huge mega brand on the internet today and tons of licensing agreements. She launched her own sunglass line, fragrance line, and all of that.
0: Reading these, you know, especially the early part of the book, I was reminded of a lot of old familiars. Julia Allison was a name I'd completely forgotten from those hazy days. So what was her historic importance?
2: Julia has been so written out of the history of the sort of creator economy and internet. And she was so incredibly influential. She was, I would say, one of the first real influencers, especially one of the first multi-platform influencers to ever exist. Paris Hilton had this sort of like money and fame previously because of her name and because she was a socialite. And, you know, socialites always had money and fame. TV people had money and fame. But Julia Allison was just kind of an average person, and she decided to build this cult of personality online. She wanted to be in media. She was covering sort of tech um, as a journalist. She saw Tom Wolf speak, and she realized, you know, Tom Wolf has a really strong brand, and if I want to succeed on the Internet, I need to have a brand. And
0: His white suit really did it for her, right?
2: Yeah. Well, and I think it's so smart, and she was so correct, which is that to grow online, you need to have a personal brand. And at the time, you know, social media was seen as like sort of cringy. You were not supposed to promote yourself. Like you could not build your own audience An audience was something that sort of had to be bestowed on you because of your pedigree or accomplishments. And Julia really went out and built from the ground up her own audience um, using Tumblr, using blogging platforms. She was early on Vimeo and YouTube. She built, you know, this affiliate marketing business. She was doing huge sponsored content deals with major advertisers And she was vilified for it. Going back, I had pages and pages that got cut of just the horrific media coverage she got.
0: Gawker was very mean to her.
2: I mean, Gawker just destroyed her, largely because she deigned to promote her blog in the comments of, you know, Gawker posts. Again, something that people do all day long. I mean, in the comments of Instagram or Twitter, right? Like people are replying, promoting their own stuff. This is just a given. But she was doing this back in 2008 and 2009. She was completely vilified. And of course, there was so much misogyny towards her. You know, she was called like a fame whore and all this stuff. Whereas, of course, men that were doing the same thing were just called self promoters. Julia really trailblazed. And and then of course, quit the internet because of it. She just got so much hate and sort of vitriol. Ultimately, she was right about everything.
0: And if I'm remembering correctly, she's now in the Kennedy School as a graduate student?
2: Yeah, she's actually up at Harvard um, at the Kennedy School. And yeah, I mean, she's doing great. Her life is, she's thriving, but she's very off the internet. And she's ultimately decided not to be an influencer anymore.
0: YouTube, born 2005. How did it start? And uh, how did it and some lucky users begin to make money?
2: So YouTube started, I, ironically, as a dating site. It was supposed to be for people to sort of like upload videos and, and match with each other. Um, but it quickly just became this repository for homegrown videos very early had these sort of discovery mechanisms like the YouTube homepage where they would surface viral videos, viral at the time, meaning, you know, just a few thousand views. Web video had been a thing for a while. I mean, everybody, there were all these sort of like web video sites and services. They weren't all on one platform. It was all kind of like very disjointed. And um, YouTube became this platform that that was like this hub for online video. And so you saw a lot of early internet stars emerge from there in the late aughts.
0: Well, how did they start making money on it? You know, it started out as just a place to share funny videos and then it became a big business.
2: There was this sort of famous Carl's Jr. campaign where... Carl's Jr., the burger chain, um, was running an ad campaign. They were buying banner ads, which at the time was the preferred method of advertising on, on websites. And then they had this extra budget left over. And so this marketer was like, hey, why don't we throw some money towards these actual YouTubers? And so they created the first sort of sponsored content on YouTube. Actually, the content that YouTubers created about Carl's Jr., far, far, far outperformed any of the banner ads that they had made. And so it, it sort of was this light bulb moment for a lot of people in the industry of like, whoa, there's something here. You know, getting these YouTubers to talk about products is actually a huge way for people to reach audiences that we previously weren't able to reach very well with banner ads. And so that, along with the sponsored content stuff that was happening in blogs, sort of really started to birth this era of sponcons.
0: I'm speaking with Taylor Lorenz, author of Extremely Online, about to be published by Simon & Schuster. I was struck by how YouTube grew during the period of the financial crisis and the recession 2008, yes. 2009. Is this world just immune to normal economic cycles? Is it a form of <laughs> escapism? Uh, the COVID crisis was great for a lot of online enterprises too. So yeah. it's like they live in their own world. And so- well, you
2: know, what it is, is um, so many people in the content creator industry, I don't know if it's the majority, but certainly most of the people I talked to actually got into it because they had unstable traditional employment speaking of the mommy bloggers, that whole generation of of mommy bloggers, they came because they were women that were shut out of the workforce. Once they had children, they couldn't go back to work. They had, you know, childcare duties, they couldn't afford to work and pay for childcare. And, um, so many of the early YouTube content creators were also people that were shut out of traditional means of employment. Um, or they, you know, it was the recession. Nobody could find jobs. I, myself, this is how I got my start. I, graduated into the recession and I couldn't find a job. And I was working temp jobs and ended up building an audience on Tumblr, which launched my blogging career and launched my whole entire career in media. So- D- Is
0: that how the Times found you?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I worked at the Atlantic before I worked at the New York Times, but um, no, yeah. I mean, that is how I got my start in media. I started blogging and then other digital media websites asked me to write for them. And you, know, you start writing for bigger and bigger places and then- And I got my start doing takedowns of the New York Times, articles on internet stuff. I thought they were so out of touch. And then 10 years later, of course, I ended up writing for them. The recession was a big moment for the creator world to sort of blossom because you had all this innovation and the stakes were low. There was no money in the industry yet. So you had these people sort of like being scrappy and building these new revenue models.
0: So the year after YouTube was born, Twitter was born, 2006, how did Twitter come to be what it was? I don't know if it still is being after Elon has uh, been um, doing his best to wreck it, but it yeah. grew to some immensely influential uh, proportions.
2: Twitter emerged in that sort of same soup of like the late aughts um, social media world, and it very quickly became this place for people to cultivate personality driven accounts, um, all other social media at that time, like you had to put your face on it, it was very personal. Twitter, you could grow really quickly with these anonymous accounts. A lot of people remember parody accounts from this era, like the Bronx Zoo Cobra, or like these kind of funny accounts. I write about this um, account YPR girl, which was this anonymous account from within Donna Karen, New York, it was actually run by the head of comms, Aliza Licht. And it's just was about sort of like this personality that she developed, which was kind of this like gossip girl of the fashion industry and, and how that became a brand. And what DKNY Girl did was transform how brands approach social. So before, you know, brands had sort of kept social media at a distance and didn't really know how to engage with it. And once DKNY Girl came onto the scene, they really embraced this like personality-driven social media marketing tactic, which has become very pervasive today.
0: Even later, Instagram, 2011. It didn't do ads at first, and the founders were not so happy about users monetizing content, but that didn't last very long. Yeah,
2: they wanted it to be this ad-free space. They really didn't want it to be a place for marketing. Of course, that ultimately failed because you've got to make money. Tech platforms have always had a weird, hostile relationship towards content creators, and I think part of it is because content creators are doing sponsored content, which, of course, tech platforms themselves don't get a cut of. And I talk about this girl, Liz S1, She's at New York City on Instagram, um, and, and sort of how she built her business. She had this whole, they were called the first family of Instagram, actually, because her mother had, I think, like, at real estate. Her brother had at food. They had all these early, big Instagram handles that they were monetizing, and she built one of the first social media marketing agencies.
0: Vine, uh, interesting story. Now, largely forgotten. It had its moment. But one of the reasons it collapsed was that it alienated its creators, right?
2: Yes, you know, it's so funny because I think Elon is is learning the same lesson that the founders of Vine learned back in 2015, which is don't alienate your biggest creators or your platform is going to crumble and ultimately go out of business and I think Twitter's headed that way. The Vine founders had this notion of what they wanted the app to be and how they wanted users to use the app, but of course, with social technology, you can't ultimately define how your app is used, that's up to the user base. And so this group of content creators, which all happened to live together at this apartment complex um, called 1600 Vine in Hollywood, they really dominated the app. And once they felt that Vine wasn't treating them well and wasn't cutting them in on advertising deals and stuff, they just decided to all leave en masse. And that set Vine on this death spiral. And ultimately, the app went out of business.
0: The creator side of of all this, um, they're like production houses, right? Groups of, of content creators. How'd that come to be and how's that work?
2: So my book sort of talks about the emergence of this like content house industry and how, you know, it started back in 2009 with the station and then you had the O2L house early on and YouTube world and then 1600 Vine and then TikTok houses. But these are basically loose collectives of content creators that work together. They often live together. They don't always live together full time, but sometimes they're just have a gathering place or a collab group, and they help each other. They share brand deals, they collaborate. You know, It's really hard to create content on your own. And so if you're part of a collective, it's it becomes a lot easier.
0: TikTok. I've kept up with everything in the virtual world all along, but I really started feeling the age gap with TikTok. It just seems utterly alien to me. I barely look <laughs> at it. It makes me feel really old and marginal. How it come to be what it is,
2: so TikTok started as Musical.ly, which um once Vine shut down, there was this sort of race to capitalize on Vine's demise and the app that succeeded the most in sort of taking on that sort of place where it became the destination for short form video content was was Musical.ly. It was hugely popular with young people. I talk about this content creator, Baby Ariel, Ariel Martin, who dominated the app and sort of pioneered all these new formats. Musical.ly became TikTok. So t- Musical.ly was founded, I um, think it was 2017. And then acquired, maybe it was 2016, it was founded, and then or it was acquired in, sorry, 2017, but it fully relaunched as TikTok in the US in 2018. Um, obviously, it was acquired by ByteDance, which was a Chinese tech conglomerate. ByteDance poured a ton of money into TikTok, and um, yeah, completely dominated the, the market. I think young people who grew up using Musical.ly, TikTok doesn't feel foreign to them at all. It's the same app, it's the same features, essentially. Um, but I think to other people that are maybe a little bit older and grew up in the Facebook, MySpace, Twitter world, TikTok still seems very foreign to them. TikTok's core innovation is breaking this follow method of social media. Every other social app prior to TikTok, you had to like manually follow people to kind of see content. Whereas TikTok now, everything is delivered through this algorithmic recommendation feed called the For You page. So you don't have to follow a single person on TikTok to see content that is tailored to your interests And you don't have to have a single follower on TikTok to go viral. You post something on TikTok, it goes into this algorithmic content delivery system, and you can get millions of views overnight.
0: People get very paranoid about that algorithm that it just, you can read your mind or study (laughs) your irises or whatever, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's just a very good content delivery mechanism. And I I think, you know, if people knew the data that advertising systems, especially things like Facebook were harvesting on us, I, I think they would be Worried.
0: Okay, now I have to get earnest with some criticisms. One, that the social media has been a breeding ground for racists and the alt right. Is the medium, does it somehow encourage um, this kind of creepy extremism?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think that these platforms, especially Facebook and Twitter and everything, they're built to reward extreme content. Because all of these social media feeds are algorithmically ranked and they prioritize engagement above all else, nothing is more engaging than extreme content, racist content, violent content you know and so this is the type of content that these platforms incentivize and this is the type of creator that succeeds online I, the more hateful you can be the the more engagement you'll get because you're generating outrage i mean this is literally how we ended up with donald trump in office right i think he's better at manipulating these systems than a, than a lot of people um and and knows how to sort of generate outrage for attention and if you have online attention you can do anything like you you know you can just be totally shameless and use it to launch your political career or, you know, launch a multimillion dollar business, we end up with a lot of extremists that have a lot of
0: power. Now, another criticism, fragmentation, social alienation, the quest for likes drives people into mental health crises. And maybe not just individuals, but the whole society is getting infected by this sort of disease. It's breaking real social ties. It's making us all disembodied and alienated. What do you say to that criticism?
2: I totally agree. And this is like sort of what I wanted to communicate with that socialite rank story is that we are all like ranked now, you know, like everyone has this social profile. Everyone is so cognizant of other people's kind of social status and following and likes, you know, did you get that 11th like on your picture or whatever? And it's deeply corrosive and bad in a lot of ways. I think that if you are an entertainer and you want to be in media and you want to you know pursue fame in some way and you have the mental fortitude to do that, you need a very strong sense of self to operate on the internet and not lose your mind. 99% of people don't have that. And especially children don't have that. And I think it's very dangerous. This ecosystem that we've put kids in where they feel it's not just the social media companies that are pressuring them. it's, It's our entire economic system where the number one reason kids want to be influencers is because they don't believe that they can find stability in traditional employment. And they're correct. You know, our economy is set up in a way where it's not the economy of yesterday or year where you like pay your dues for 40 years in the same job and then you get a pension. There's no stability. And so people turn to online fame because we're a fame-obsessed society that runs on attention. And people view that as sort of some form of stability. And it's very dangerous and bad.
0: Now, is there any way to uh, compensate for that without really stepping on the medium itself?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that we need more social safety nets in this country. If we had more stability and, you know, people wouldn't have to worry about, about getting online attention. I mean, I've talked to, especially in 2020, I interviewed tons of people that said, well, look, I'm just trying to get an online following because if I do end up in the hospital, I know that at least like my GoFundMe will be covered because I'll have my fans. And that's very dystopian. And I think speaks to this broader problem of this sort of complete lack of social safety net and stability in our economy. It's very bad. It's very bad for young people. There's, there's a lot of nihilism among young people, and rightfully so, but I think we need to fix these systems and have more. Give people ways to make a living that aren't selling yourself on the internet. People should be able to have stable careers and employment, and it's very hard it's very hard.
0: So it's a social problem, not a social media problem. Yes. Yes. The growth of the creator influence economy has squeezed out what made the early internet so much fun, uh, the anti-hierarchical playground for everyone. And now it just seems much more like everything else. Um, yeah, are, are we right to lament that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I miss the early days of the internet when the web was so, you know, there weren't these like monopolies yet and there was so much more creativity and expression and I hope that we can get back there. I think right now, unfortunately, because of the way our economic system is set up and and our political system, it's like we have these tech monopolies dominating and there's not as much freedom of expression and creativity and fun because the internet is so dominated by hate and people weaponizing these platforms. But I do think, I mean, I'm ultimately a tech optimist and I do think we can get back to that better place.
0: If we just had a better society. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is the social media social media era over? I mean, Facebook these days seems more about ads than posts and Musk is wrecking Twitter and the alternatives like Blue Sky. look kind of derivative and belated and lifeless? So what's next? Or is it premature to run the obituaries?
2: No, I definitely think that we're ending an era of social media. I don't think, I mean, the internet is the ultimate people connector. And I think that people are not going to stop connecting online. But I do think that this era of like broadcast-based social networks where like, you go on to post publicly to everyone and all your friends, like people don't want that as much. That's why you see the rise of things like Instagram stories, more ephemeral forms of media, more kind of ways to connect in, in small groups with the rise of things like discord. You know, people don't just want to post every single status update publicly to everyone in the world. There's a split. I wrote about this a couple of years ago, but I do. And Evan Spiegel talked a lot about this, but I do think that there's this sort of like split of socializing and media where you're going to have these big platforms like TikTok where you can dip in and, go if you want to sort of connect with people on a mass scale. But then most of people's social environment, I think, is going to be on the Internet is going to be more in closed communities.
0: And finally, the uh, political philosopher Slavoj Zizek once said, we used to worry about Big Brother watching, and now we worry that no one is watching. Is that a healthy development? I mean, is that the loss of any sense of privacy? Um,
2: Yes. Wow. I never heard that quote, but that is such a good quote. I feel like I should put that on my book cover um, because it's so real. I talk about this in my book, but everyone wants their existence validated, and they do that through social connections and building an online presence. And um, I think it's kind of human nature to want to be seen and heard. I think we just have to be mindful of of how these platforms are sort of warping the incentives and encouraging us to maybe overshare and commodify ourselves in kind of dystopian and invasive ways, and share, but just be mindful.
0: They have some very smart and sophisticated people manipulating us.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And it's pretty hard to resist.
2: Yeah, it is. I think you have to have a very strong sense of self. And I think that's, I mean, I think parents ask me all the time, like, what should I do? You know, my kids. And I just say like, aside from sort of like policing screen time, just like they need to have a strong sense of self and the strong sense of who they are, which is very hard for young people, especially teenagers, because they're still figuring that out.
0: That was Taylor Lorenz, a technology reporter for the Washington Post and author of Extremely Online, which is about to be published by Simon & Schuster. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a sum of Song for a Future Generation by Chicks on Speed, a commentary on the extremely online world of 2001. Till next week, bye! Galaxy
1: Hi) I love tomatoes and black-capped chickadees. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I really like biking in the park, and I like... Oh, I have all these friends.
0: Hi, my name is Pella, and I'm a pieces. I love computers and
2: hot tamale. want to be the captain of the
1: enterprise